Well, the question is, what, like, what is church? Uh, and even people who have grown up in church, in fact, maybe particularly people who have grown up in church, will at one stage, at some point in their life, reach uh, awareness and start questioning the things that they've just always grown up and breathed and drank and sort of uh, never really paid attention to. Uh, and they will start to ask this question, what is church? Uh, for example, I, I grew up in Toowoomba, the town of Toowoomba. The tagline for Toowoomba is the garden city. I can tell you in all the time living in Toowoomba, I never really noticed a garden until I became an adult and went back and visited Toowoomba. I was like, oh, there's gardens everywhere. It really is a beautiful city. But there's things when you grow up that you don't notice and then uh, at a point you begin to question and pay attention to differently. So even a person who is brought up every Sunday going to church is going to ask, what is it? And maybe particularly a person who's brand new to the scene will also ask that question. Is church a building, for example? Well, I hope not. Uh, We don't have one. Uh, Is church a time slot, an hour to an hour and a half on a Sunday morning? Is it a people? We're getting closer. You know, a bit like a bit like a club, but maybe a bit deeper, deeper or richer or better or more than just a club. Is church an institution? Uh, that word institution gives people chills these days, doesn't it? Institution. Uh, it sounds cold and rigid and heartless, devoid of warmth and relationship and that all-important authenticity. Uh, institutions, I would say, uh, rightly uh, cause us to question their validity uh, because institutions are open to corruption uh, in at least two different directions. Uh, firstly, institutions are open to corruption because uh, things that are deeply true and passionate can lose their heart and life when they become boxed in by bureaucracy and structures of an institution. Uh, it's a kind of fear people sometimes express about marriage, for example. You know, once we do a ceremony and sign some legal forms, what used to feel easy and natural about, about our passion, maybe that'll leave us. Uh, and that's what, uh, it's a wrong thinking that sometimes scares people off making that formal commitment in a relationship. And it's an accusation that many have of Christianity, that a movement that was begun by Jesus, a man who was charismatic and compassionate, that movement has been buried and lost under layers of tradition and other encumbrances. So that's one uh, possible direction for corruption of an institution is just through drift, you know, the loss of first principles and heart. But the other direction in which institutions are open to corruption is by corruption, genuine evil and greed. Uh, There would be some individuals who would seek to advance in the ranks of the institution for the sake of power and self. Uh, And then that they would use that power for personal gain. And then that they uh, might pull strings so that the institution then becomes no longer recognisable as what it once was, uh, but the institution becomes a prop for their own ego and pay packet and lifestyle uh, and and a means to keep the masses under control. And we see as we read through 1 Timothy, uh, this concern for the church is that uh, in both directions it's possible that the church uh, that Timothy has been placed in charge of uh, is is fighting against these two drifts. Uh, First, that that drift, that gradual loss of first principles, but also, and probably the more pointy end in 1 Timothy, uh, the greed of people who are seeking progression and advancement for their own sake instead of for the glory of God or for the good of others. 
And the question isn't ever simply, uh, what is church? That question I asked at the start. It's never simply, what is church? Or even, what should church be at its best? But what does that have to do with me? What on earth does church, whatever it's meant to be, have to do with me? Is church, for example, a thing that I want to have anything to do with at all? Can my personal faith be better served outside of the church? Or, or, or is even faith a thing that I, w- I would long to abandon for, in place of something else? What role ought I to play as a part of a church if I'm going to sit here every week? Is, is there more to that or is that enough? Well, that's what the book uh, known as 1 or 1 Timothy uh, is about. Uh, what is church and how ought I to behave? Uh, it is not the case, it's not the case uh, that most vital truths about God and reality are buried under layers of tradition and translations. It is not the case that, uh, that the Bible, by and large, is hard to understand. What is the case is that, by and large, what you read in the Bible on face value uh, is true and simple to understand and apply. Uh, no genius or special vision is required. Now, understanding history and cultural culture is valuable. Uh, it's good and useful to understand an author's background and the context of their audience, Uh, Being familiar with the original text and language is a bonus, but none of that's essential. I'm a big believer that the most obvious meaning of the Bible is usually the right one. So mostly the first honest and sensible interpretation is pretty right. Layers of tradition and translations have not buried the most vital truths about God and reality. They're right here to be taken and read revealed to be true and believed and acted on by almost anyone. Nevertheless, it's pretty nice when you're reading an ancient text and the author pauses in the middle of their own breath to introduce themselves, their audience and their purpose. And in 1 Timothy, we have all of this laid out. Uh, It makes things nice and clear and simple, as I've said. That's what we get right in the middle of the letter of 1 Timothy and that's where we're going to spend most of our time today. Uh, Paul has already introduced, if if you go back to what we first read in chapter 1, he's introduced himself, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. He's introduced his letter's recipient, uh, that's in verse 2, that's Timothy. He even goes on to, uh, to give us a glimpse into their relationship with one another. He calls Timothy his own true child in the faith. Not a biological child, but his child in the faith. We'll talk and think a bit about that as we go on. And he, and he gives uh, a hint at the situation in verse 3 of chapter 1. He says, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia to remain in Ephesus and to try and uh, sort out this church and, and keep things on an even keel. But then a little later, chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, he pauses to say this. These are the words we're going to spend most of our time today. Paul says, I am writing these things to you so that... Gee, that's a really helpful statement, isn't it? He's telling us why he's writing it. I'm writing these things to you so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. There's a few times when Paul says something like, uh, I write this thing or I wrote that thing or this statement is true. And it's not always crystal clear whether uh, the, the this that he's talking about or this statement is the statement that he's just made or the statement he's about to make. Uh, it doesn't also always matter particularly, but, it, but it's not always really easy to tell whether he's speaking backwards or forwards. 
But here when he says, I am writing these things to you, so that, well, it appears pretty obvious that he's making a general statement about more or less his whole letter. All of these things are encompassed under this one thing. This is how one ought to behave in the household of God. And look, that, that just falls into place as you read. There's a lot of really practical instructions about how things ought to look in a church. So by way of introduction and summary to 1 Timothy, we're going to start just with these two verses, 14 and 15. Uh, and we're going to look at a f- few things. First, the people involved. Paul says, I, Paul, am writing these things to you, Timothy. So we're going to meet Paul and Timothy today. Uh, second, what does Paul say about church this seems to be the crux of the matter and there's at least two things in the first place he describes church as a household like a family and in the second place uh, like some sort of a structure or a building uh, with pillars and buttresses foundations so we'll think about that and finally uh, there is a purpose the truth that the church is supposed to support has implications for life that you may know how one ought to behave We're not left in the dark here, friends. This is good news that we have plain, spelled out instructions for how to go about things. So the people, who are Paul and Timothy, the I and the you that Paul is talking about here? Well, the the story of Paul, uh, if you don't already know it, is one of the most captivating and encouraging stories about an individual man or woman uh, in all the Bible. He introduces himself... Uh, in chapter 1, verse 1 of the letter, as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Saviour and of Christ Jesus our hope. Now, this is pretty lofty stuff. Even the word apostle alone uh, is indicating something of his special status within the church. Uh, To go on then to say that this is by uh, the command of God our Saviour and of Christ Jesus our hope is, uh, is building upon his authenticity. But how did Paul become an apostle? Well, you may well know that, uh, that in his lifetime, in Jesus' lifetime, sorry, that in Jesus' lifetime, Jesus was followed uh, by diverse crowds of people, vast crowds at times of people. But there were 12 men in particular who Jesus called out of the crowd to be his disciples. Uh, these 12 men had the privilege of walking and eating with him for about three years. They got to feed off his wisdom. Uh, they got to uh, know him personally. And they were the primary witnesses as well uh, of his resurrection. And so they were then commissioned by Jesus to continue his work, including teaching and including even the performing of miracles in some cases. Uh, And these 12 men became known as the apostles. Uh, And the word apostle means sent one. Uh, They were sent. They're commissioned. They have a task, a special responsibility. Now, I talk about 12. That's the traditional way to talk about it. Uh, Most of us know that Judas was one of those 12 and uh, he eliminated himself by betraying Jesus. Uh, But he was replaced uh, with another 12. And nowhere in those 12 is Paul, who is now calling himself in this letter to Timothy, an apostle. Nowhere. He was not among those men. In fact, Paul stood for everything that was anti Jesus. In his lifetime, Jesus demonstrated otherworldly compassion, exceptional love and care for others, and gentleness, except when he was confronted by the religious authorities who were jealous of him, who felt that uh, they, um, uh, 
who felt threatened that their influence was shrinking while Jesus' momentum was growing. Now, there is no evidence that Paul ever crossed Jesus in his lifetime, but Paul was one of those religious authorities, exactly the kind of man who hated Jesus and who would have gotten Jesus' most scathing comments. Paul had pedigree, uh, he had education, and he had power and recognition, reputation. Uh, he had, Paul had power to the extent that he was given authority to round up and arrest followers of Jesus in the early years of Christianity's modest expansion. Uh, he even stood and gave his consent while at least one Christian man was stoned to death by a mob. But then one day, while Paul was on the road uh, with papers to arrest more Christians, he was stopped in his, in his tracks. He was arrested, so to speak, by a blinding light and the voice of Jesus saying, why are you persecuting me? And Paul's life was instantly changed, forever. He went from Jesus' fiercest opponent to one of his most devoted followers. He even went from persecutor to persecuted. So radical was his transformation. His former Jewish colleagues turned against him and he was on the outer and imprisoned and eventually killed for his faith. And all of this you can read in the book of Acts, chapter 9, which tells the history. But quite often in Paul's writings, he retells snippets of the same events. He'll talk about himself. Uh, And we get this uh, sort of double confirmation that uh, this history that was written about him uh, is also true and confirmed by his own words as as he writes about himself to people who know him. Now, when you write about yourself to someone who knows you, you can't very well tell a lie. Uh, And so Paul says this. Uh, This is in chapter 1. Again, you could read it in your own Bible. But uh, in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, it's one of the times where Paul talks about himself. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted in ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience and as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. There's good reason to have a think and, uh, and to contemplate the life of Paul because although you and I won't have much in common with Paul ourselves uh, in the details of our lives and our own uh, biographies, there's a few threads that we will have in common with him. First of all is this. Uh, for, the, for the Christian, uh, your story is best understood, like Paul's, in terms of your own sin and God's mercy and grace. Your own sin, God's mercy and grace, these things best make sense of your life. Contrary to popular modern belief, honestly recognising and owning your sinfulness will not 
crush you. It will not harm you to acknowledge that you are a sinful person, that you are even, alongside Paul, the worst of sinners. Remember uh, first from our time in Genesis last term, uh, that even the most robust recognition of your own sin should always be layered on top of a thing that is even more fundamentally true of you, the first principle that you were made in God's image. You were made to carry and reflect the likeness of the living God and not just you but the person who sits beside you and the person out there and the people across the seas and the people with different skin colour and orientations and all the rest. That is the most fundamentally true thing of us. This is a message of universal human dignity uh, that is even more lofty and generous than any uh, merely material or humanist philosophy can come up with. But it also holds up a standard, doesn't it? That if you and I were made in God's image to bear and carry His likeness, it holds up a standard and it sheds a light on how far it is we've each fallen. Which in turn then, if we look at how far it is we've fallen, that in turn sheds its own light on how vast is the love and patience of our Lord, that He would call any of us back again. It is true even of Paul. It is true even of you and me. Your Christian story is best understood in terms of your own sin versus God's mercy and grace. The second thing uh, that we share in common with Paul, that you should have in common with him, is that knowing Christ is transformative. It transforms you from the inside out. Uh, Paul went... Uh, from persecutor to evangelist, but his life change was more fundamental than a, than a change of job or role or, you know, or salary or whatever. Uh, in the middle of this passage, he says, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. What are the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus that overflowed to him? I don't think he's talking about Jesus' love for him when he talks about this love that's overflowed. I don't think he's talking here mainly about Jesus' love for him because I don't think he's talking about Jesus' faith in him. That would seem backwards, wouldn't it, for Jesus to have faith in Paul. So I think what Paul is saying is that the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with an imparted faith and love that now fill me that, that, that weren't a part of me before. God in his grace has granted me faith to trust in him, to see and be confronted with the Lord Jesus. Remember, Paul was not seeking Jesus. Jesus found and arrested him. So Paul describes his new internalised faith and his life of love as gifts from Christ that have been more or less implanted inside him, as if he's been given a brand new heart. That is God's work in you. God, The God who transformed Paul is working in you to transform you, to grant you ever-increasing faith and richer and deeper love for others. Now, that work in you will sometimes happen rapidly, as it did for Paul, but it will certainly happen continuously, at least steadily, as step by step and year by year, we are transformed by faith and characterised by love. 
This is God's gift and grace. And the final thing we should have in common with Paul is a sense of almost shock and wonder that God would care for me. He says, this is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Nothing suits a Christian less than pride and presumption and smugness. Christ came to save us from our sin, not to reward us for our brilliance. He wasn't there thinking, gee, who are these guys just killing it down here? I've got to, I've got to get down and meet them. It's like, oh, look at these guys making a mess again. I have to help them. You and I are no better than the people out there, by the way, just because we're here on Sunday morning. We are no better. We're just, for want of a better word, really lucky. Praise God. Uh, and let's be a part of sharing that good news about him. As usual, I'm spending more time on the earlier points than the latter points, so never mind. That's an intro to Paul. What about Timothy? Well, just like we learn about Paul's life in the historical book of Acts, uh, and you can read that for yourself, uh, that's where we first meet Timothy too. There's this, there's this narrative about him uh, in chapter 16 of the book of Acts. We, we learn that he's the son of a believing Jewish woman and a Greek man, although we don't know whether the, uh, his father was, uh, was a believing Greek uh, or, uh, or, or not. By the time Paul meets Timothy, uh, Timothy's already had a good reputation in the local Christian community. Uh, and very quickly, it appears, Paul involves Timothy in his own missionary work. He takes him with him. Uh, and then we find in this letter that Paul is no longer with Timothy. Uh, he's still, in some sense, working alongside him. They're working towards a common goal. But Timothy has now graduated to the extent, at least, that Paul has given him a role. Uh, and not only Paul, but the church combined has laid hands on him and, and commissioned Timothy to a task to serve this church, uh, apparently in Ephesus. Uh, we also learn in this letter about Timothy, this, this personal letter between Paul and Timothy, uh, that uh, there's at least two things uh, working against Timothy. Uh, so in spite of his... Uh, so Timothy has a good reputation, but his reputation is in spite of at least a couple of things working against him. First of all, he is young, and second, he is a sickly person. In chapter 4, verse 2... Paul says, let no one despise you for your youth, but set an example. We know from that that at least he is young and possibly that people are despising him because of that. But let no one have it over you or despise you just because you are young, but you set an example. And in chapter 5, verse 23, this is still in the letter, Paul instructs Timothy to drink wine. Uh, he says in 523, uh, don't drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. This is a man in pain uh, and uh, apparently frequently incapacitated, weak in body, but required to be strong for the sake of the church. So this young, ill man has been given a great responsibility to corral an unruly church into something that resembles order, uh, so that they will bring glory to God. Uh, we learn in the letter that Timothy's position is confirmed by prophecy uh, and by the public acknowledgement and commissioning of the church leadership of that, as they've laid hands on him uh, and prayed for him. 
And so just like uh, from the lesson of Paul, there's a, there's a lovely lesson of empowerment in this too, uh, from the, what we learn about Timothy. That Christian greatness, uh, if it's even appropriate to uh, speak of such a thing, Christian greatness, uh, but to be a, great, a truly great Christian is actually accessible to anyone. It is not about pedigree or presence. It's all about character. And character, even we learn about Timothy, character is not all about being a finished product. Because we all know that whether it be from upbringing or genetics or whatever it is, we all kind of, we all get a different start in life. Some people just live naturally a bit cleaner than others and, you know, people get set on a different course. But it's not so much about, you know, who you are now, but it's where you're going and where you've come from. It's about the process. And so in chapter 4, verse 15, right after telling Timothy to overcome the disadvantages of youth by setting an example, Paul says, practice these things so that all may see your progress and persist in this. It's got to be a three-point sermon in there, doesn't there? Practice, progress, persistence. You, need, you don't need to have made it already to be doing that. Christian greatness is in growing in Christ. And, and, and in fact, my experience of church life is exactly that. Uh, that two people might be living uh, vastly different looking, you know, moral or professional lives. But by and large, I've, felt, I've seen that people in the church are able to see that, but look at where this guy came from. And look at where this guy's going. And by and large, we're, we're, we're called on to recognise and, and, uh, and champion progress more than the product. In Paul's purpose statement, he says this letter to Timothy is about the church. What is church, I asked at the start. Well, the first thing uh, that Paul says in this verse is that church is the household of God. Uh, What a beautiful counterpoint to the unattractive vision of church as an institution, like we talked about before. Uh, it's not an institution, it's a household. And, no, and note as well, this is a, this is a household, uh, not a house, not a building, although he uses the building imagery later and we'll look at that in just a moment. But the church is not primarily a physical structure. We are family. Uh, and, and this language is so rich through all of Scripture. We pray almost weekly the words of the Lord's Prayer, Our Father in heaven. That's how we're invited to speak to God as our Father. The implication of that is that we are His children and it's not actually left to us uh, to fill in that gap because uh, again in the New Testament, time and time again, we are referred to as the children of God and not just children as in those who are loved and nurtured and uh, sort of helped along by Him, but children as in heirs, His sons, recipients of His overflowing glory and authority. The first Christians uh, almost uniformly called each other brother and sister. They were ridiculed because that was so countercultural at the time. And we see in particular this in the relationship between Paul and Timothy back in chapter 1 verse 2 where Paul addresses Timothy like this, just these beautiful words, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. He doesn't uh, leave it to... uh, He doesn't even leave it just as calling Timothy his own child, but his true child, an even more true child. 
Now, what we'll see uh, as we look through 1 Timothy is that both families are important. Uh, As a Christian person, you are invited into a brand new family, in some respects, an even more true family of fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters. But we also find uh, in chapter 5, I think it is, um, that even as we belong to this true family of God, we must not neglect the family that we're born into. That is also part of your Christian duty, to love and serve not only your Christian family members, but, uh, but the people you were planted with in the beginning. But church is family. And so even as, you know, even as a family, uh, uh, perhaps you saw this in your own family, uh, as your own number of children has grown or not, but structures change as numbers change. Uh, when it's husband and wife, you know, you have all the time in the world to talk to each other and make plans on the fly and all, and all the rest. And then a child enters your home and things radically change. And you're having to negotiate time and figure out plans and, and work on these things together. And then add to, uh, a second or a third or a fourth child to the mix and things suddenly become just a bit more regimented. Uh, structure becomes so much more important in how you uh, work a schedule, even in the home. And we see this in church as well. In a very small church, uh, it's highly relational. Uh, Everyone knows each other. Everyone speaks to each other in familiar, uh, friendly terms. Uh, And uh, the structures of authority and stuff, although they're there, they they don't seem as obvious and they don't don't mean so much in some ways. But as a family grows, even in the house, uh, but also in a church, uh, and as it becomes a worldwide thing, there, there is a sense in which order and structures Uh, are necessary to to be put in place. Now, that does not and certainly should not ever uh, detract from the fact that we are brothers and sisters uh, on a truly equal playing field. Uh, But for the sake of, you know, reality, uh, but also uh, good order, uh, then other structures and stuff begin to come in. But family uh, is the most important I would say, metaphor at least, but, it, but it's not even really a metaphor, is it? Your true child, your true family. Uh, we see as well in, uh, in chapter 5 uh, the way this plays out. In chapter 5, verse 1, we'll look at this uh, in, in more detail uh, as the term goes on. Uh, Paul says that you should speak to older men gently as you would to your father. You should treat older women as you would treat your own mother. You should treat other young men like your brother and other young women like your sisters. There's no sense of uh, the the hierarchy exists more in age, doesn't it, than in structure, even for this man who's commissioned as a leader in the church. And so family, household uh, is the picture, not just the picture, the reality. The church is also, Paul says, a pillar and buttress of the truth. This is where I'll start speeding up. Um, uh, one of the really interesting things in 1 Timothy, there's a, there's a few uh, unique things in this letter. And one of the things that is uh, unique to Timothy is how often he uses this word uh, that's translated in most of our Bibles as godliness. Uh, if you flick through it, it's nine or ten times he uses the word godliness. Uh, and that word, in fact, the Greek word that he uses uh, doesn't have the word God in it. Uh, it's a word probably more like the, word, the English word piety, Um, but we don't use that so much now. It's kind of a combination, this interface of uh, of faith and religion and doctrine with 
life and morality and practice. And then we see this play out as well in the whole structure of the letter. As Paul talks again and again about the importance of good, sound teaching and doctrine, uh, and then in negative terms about squashing false teaching and false doctrine and combating all of that, uh, and then about the importance of, for example, Timothy setting an example in his conduct and his life. And then in the practical outflow, which we'll look at in more detail in coming weeks, about how church should appear and feel uh, on a day-to-day or weekly basis. Truth, a pillar and buttress of the truth, uh, is what a church should stand for. This is not to say, of course, that truth uh, is fragile and it needs propping up with pillars, because it could tumble any moment. Uh, But we are one with the structure of truth, as revealed about God. Uh, That the church is here to uh, defend truth, guard truth, proclaim truth, teach truth, and naturally, obviously, to live by truth, so that you may know how one ought to behave. And this really is just a segue into the coming weeks, that you should know how one ought to behave. If you were to read, Timothy, uh, this letter uh, for yourself this afternoon, you would see that, that this really is the bulk of the letter, that you would know how one ought to behave in this household of God, the church of the living God. Uh, there is, it is practical, step by step, uh, how church should look, how we should behave, and what it is we owe to one another. And so, uh, actually, as a general practice, when we pick a book of the Bible here, I'll sort of pick, you know, verses 1 to 10 and go through that, and then verses 10 to 20 the next week, and, and, and so and so. Uh, but as you read 1 Timothy, he kind of circles back on themes from time to time. So, we're going to take a slightly more topical approach to 1 Timothy. Uh, and so, each week, uh, we're going to go more or less in order, uh, but some chapters, uh, passages will get more attention than others as we try and pick up uh, seven or eight of the, the key themes in the book, which we'll come to later. But one thing, just in closing, that is littered again and again through the book is this theme uh, of the glory of God. Remember, the church uh, exists uh, as a foundation, as a pillar, as a structure uh, that belongs to the truth. And the truth is this, that God is king, that God rules. And so there's a couple of uh, like little creeds or doxologies or statements that sort of appear throughout the, the letter. And, and let me read this uh, just in closing, that this really is fundamentally, you know, all of this, you know, how we ought to behave is really all gearing to one, towards one purpose, the glory of God. Where is it? Verse 17, chapter 1, verse 17, all of this, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for all that you've done for us in Christ. Uh, we thank you for the hope that we, sh- that we own as individuals in your love for us and your promise uh, of eternal life. We thank you that each of us individually are known as your own child. But we are not only individuals. Our faith is shared with many. And the people we share it with are truly our brothers and sisters and our family. Father, we thank you uh, not only for the gift of salvation and eternal life, but this gift of belonging 
uh, to your home and household. And we pray that as we go through 1 Timothy that you will guide us through this. We pray that uh, by the end of it, uh, this church uh, would look uh, under you differently uh, from how it looks today uh, as we remain committed to progress uh, and transformation as people uh, and as a church, uh, as we conform to uh, what you have taught us, what you have revealed so plainly and helpfully. And we pray all of this in the name of our Lord Jesus and to the glory of God the Father, the King of Kings. Amen.